0: Hello, and welcome to Ipsy Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm Mabel Romero, assistant professor at NIU College of Law. And my guest is Cynthia Godso, associate professor of law at Brooklyn Law School. Today, we'll be discussing her article entitled Recasting Vagueness, the Case of Teen Sex Statutes, published in the Washington LEAD Law Review. Um, So, Cynthia, just to get started here, can you tell me, um, what's a vagueness? What does that mean?
1: (laughs) Thanks, Mabel. Um, So, vagueness doctrine... Remember, it has like the, the two concerns of notice about what is criminal conduct, but then the primary concern is really, um, selective or even discriminatory enforcement. So Mm -hmm. I was thinking of laws that like, um, statutory rape for, where both parties are minors that cover both parties being minors. Or you could also say the same thing about vagrancy or loitering, where they include, they're broad and vague. So they're like a really big net, like a dragnet or, you know, a a net for police prosecutors in the case of statutory rape parents to drag, to drag in, they can, they could potentially um, prosecute, you know, thousands or in the case of teen sex, millions of people. So they're, they're able to pick and choose um, who they want based on, I argue illegitimate criteria. Basically, mm-hmm. these laws are just um, pre- present the vagueness problem in particularly stark form because they're also super broad, covering a huge amount of behavior, so that inevitably you're not going to be able to prosecute everybody or even remotely close to everybody. So you're going to pick and choose in, in an illegitimate
0: way. Okay, so when we're talking about a vague net, you, you know, wh- when we're talking about teen, teen sex statutes in, in particular, when we're talking about a vague net, what makes these statutes, you know? What qualifies them as a vague net? Why are they vague? Yeah, because
1: they cover so when you have a typical like statutory rape statute, so for instance in New York where I am the age of consent is 17, and if it's criminalizing behavior among, you know, people under 17. So if you have two um minors, which is where I'm arguing that it's vague, when it's applied to them, or it's a vague net as applied to them you know, we have the statistics on uh, people under 18 who have, who are sexually active and it's in the millions. So of mm-hmm. course they're not going to be prosecuting everyone, everyone 16 and under, yeah. right? So that makes it super, super broad. And then the, re- the way that prosecutions of statutory rape among, to where there's two minors, peer statutory rape, you're really also then allowing the parents, because parents drive most of these prosecutions, um, sometimes teachers and prosecutors, to pick who's the victim and who's the offender, right? Because mm-hmm. both kids could be both. Yeah. Because they're both minors. And they're picking that and prosecuting these cases based on, you know, there's a disproportionate number of interracial relationships or sexual activity that's prosecuted and also same sex. Mm-hmm. And so they're picking these cases based um, not on all the teens who, or minors who are having, who are sexually active, but on those who are doing it in ways that their parents you know, or society doesn't approve of, like interracial or same sex.
0: So what percentage of teens nowadays are sexually active then? I don't know exactly, but
1: it's one. one really interesting thing. I want to say it's like, like like eighteen percent or something uh-huh. or maybe, no 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 sorry it's I mean, got to be higher it's got to be than that, yeah. yeah it's got to be in the forties sorry I could like refer back to it but it's got to be it's got to be close to half yeah yeah um but one thing I was that I think is really interesting is there's been surveys of um, I think by the Pew Institute but surveys of our attitudes towards different sexual and moral issues over the decades and one that has not changed at all some of them have really changed like mm-hmm. for instance people's attitudes towards like same sex marriage or same sex relationships um, but not in the teen context so people have a majority of people have, um, over the years, consistently since the 80s when they first started this survey, have said they disapprove of teen sex, and yet at least half, or maybe maybe even a little bit more, of people have also admitted that they themselves as teens had sex. So what happens is we know that teens have sex. It's, uh, you know, depending on the age, um, it can be healthy, normal, um, or maybe even if it's too young, it's still not, like, super harmful necessarily. Um, and yet when they become adults or parents particularly, then they disapprove of it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so suddenly... The, it's just like you, a hypocrisy. Yeah, 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 it's sort of the, you know, do, I, do as I say, not as I do sort exactly, of hypocrisy. Exactly, exactly, and that's
1: consistent over time that people are having sex, they've always been having sex as, as minors, and then... Um, but then when they become adults, they disapprove of it. Okay, okay.
0: So what you see in particular with these teen sex statutes is, you know, these minors are both, you know, they could both get charged with um, statutory rape because they're having sex with each other. They're both under the age of 17 or 18, you know, sometimes 16, depending on your state and everything. Um, So, you know, this is a really big problem because there's a big overlap between victim and offender, right? What problems does that really... Created for us.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I think that it creates, well, first of all, the primary problem that, um, again, I think Vegas is trying to address, which is like a selective enforcement, right? So when you can ch- really choose who's the victim and who's the offender, then you get to choose, uh, then you can choose. And here it's mostly, it's almost always male. Um so they really have like these gender gender roles. Sometimes the female has gotten charged, but um if they get or the girl or young woman if they get pregnant, because I guess that's sort of a no-no. Mm-hmm. Um, but mostly almost always it's the it's the boy or male in in heterosexual couples, even where he's younger than the woman. So it's really interesting how we think of like female as Victimhood. And then the same sex couples, so there was one case um, that I discussed in the paper from the Ohio Supreme Court, which actually struck the prosecution or the or the application of statutory rape laws to two minors as, as being inappropriately vague, where they, um, they were two 12 year old boys. So obviously that's really young, but putting aside yeah. whether or not we think that's okay, certainly criminalizing in, it isn't going to help. But they picked the boy, since they were basically the same age, they picked the boy, the, ju- the trial judge said, oh, this boy is the offender because he initiated the contact and he provided lubricant. And it was all these kind of weird things, which again were sort of gendered male, even mm-hmm. though they're both boys, because it was like, oh, whoever initiates it is the guilty party. Yeah. So one, so that's the big problem of, of selective or wrongful enforcement. And the second problem, relatedly, is it reinforces these gendered and racialized hierarchies um, and heteronormative hierarchies through the law. And I think that you know, to the third related point, creates a lot of confusion. If we talk about the expressive value of law, what does the law mean? If what we're saying is the victim and offender is whoever, you know, a prosecutor or parent says it is not based on the conduct, but based on other things about that person.
0: Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of uh, victim and offender overlap, like we were talking about, and it, it creates all these, you know, really problematic, you know, racialized hierarchies, gender hierarchies. I'd imagine that, you know, there might even be a you know, classist hierarchies that, you know, I'm not completely aware of or anything, but how exactly is this different than mutual liability crimes like fornication, conspiracy, anything like that? That's, no, that's a great question. I I mean, I would say for like fornication,
1: um, I I think again, and I know now, you know, now we're not, now those those laws aren't post-Lawrence, aren't uh, legit anymore. You can't criminalize fornication. But I think in the past probably, and I don't know, Mm -hmm. um, I haven't done the research on this, but I do think that they were probably also gendered and probably in my argument then also illegitimate, right? No, conspiracy, that's a great question. I actually really, um, I am also a believer that a conspiracy law is very problematic given how many people Mm -hmm. it sweeps in. I mean, of course there has to be some kind of accomplice liability, but I actually think conspiracy liability kind of goes too far. And I think it presents part of the problem is in addition to over-criminalization, I'm very concerned about is that it presents the same kind of problem of them being able to pick and choose, you know, who for the same conduct gets like really harsh consequences mm-hmm. and who doesn't.
0: Yeah, so so these are both, you know, conspiracy and you know, teen sex, you know, and, and characterizing this as statutory rape somehow. They, they're both sort of part and parcel of this problem with overcriminalization. I think where, you know, we do have these big vague nets that are cast quite widely and scoop up a bunch of, um, you know, potential alleged offenders um, in a really problematic sort of fashion. So, you know, when we're talking about over what do you mean by this term? I think, like, everyone hears it and thinks they understand what that means, but, like, how would one, how would you define it, I guess, for purposes yeah, of Yeah,
1: no, that's, yeah, for this paper, I mean, I think it's a multifaceted problem. So some people talk about the carceral state. So I think both we have too much criminal law, and then it sweeps in too many people in too punitive way. Mm-hmm. So it's, like, so many different steps, which is why I think, you know, one of, I, I argue for in this paper to get rid of the, like, criminal law liability or criminalization for two minors, mm-hmm. uh, completely, because I think even if, so you have to get rid of the too much criminal law, and then that will start to get rid of, you know, too many people swept in, and then we also have to reduce uh, punishment or sentences. Mm-hmm. So it's it's all all three things, really. And so here I'm saying we really have to take the statute, you know, or make an exemption for two minors, because if we don't, then it's always going to get applied in an unfair Way, yeah, right. So just reducing the punishment isn't enough because there's still going to be criminalization.
0: Yeah, and you know, you'd highlighted some other sorts of forms of overcriminalization in the paper as well. And I I just want to talk a little bit more about those. Um, Well, I guess we talked touched on uneven sort of discretion. You know, when we're talked about establishing these hierarchies and you know, prosecuting you know, supposed offenders based on whether they were the ones who initiated, whether they present as like cis, heteronormative, or what have you. Um, how about just the concern over the erosion of the law's legitimacy?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm like, I think that's a huge concern um, with overcriminalization, both in the sense of you know the unfairness when you have only some you know people prosecuted, and again based often on racial or gendered or heteronormative um, principles, um, so which I think are illegitimate. And then I also think when we have a law in the books that so many people are violating, so for instance, again, punishing sex between two minors, um, then it just means that a bunch of people are disobeying the law, not really paying attention to it. Um, and then what value, what expressive value does that have? I mean, I think the same thing happens with marijuana possession, um, which is a strong argument for decriminalizing it, in addition to maybe that there's not really harm in it. Um, but, I mean, the fact that the two big, so I think Doug Cusack at Rutgers had done, mm-hmm. um, maybe maybe it was in the 90s or a bit later, but some research that showed the two main factors, I think, in New Jersey for getting arrested for marijuana possession were your race and geography, which are obviously related to each other as well in terms of, you know, segregation. But meaning that, it wasn't the conduct itself. Like, possessing marijuana wasn't really related to whether or yeah. not you're going to get prosecuted because so many people were doing it and then they're only picking certain people. So if that happens, then it just becomes, you know, the law, in my mind, is illegitimate when it's being applied in such an unfair way and people are less likely to follow the law. And I think we have procedural justice exactly. literature that shows that, right? Mm-hmm. If people mm-hmm. don't believe that the law is being applied fairly or even that, or that it's punishing behavior that really is you know, harmful to the community or to other people, then it's going to be less likely to be followed. Yeah.
0: You know, and I I talk about this in sort of different terms with my own first year criminal law class, or, you know, we'll talk about the crime of, you know, vagrancy or loitering, where it is essentially just existing in a public space without buying things or like doing something. It's like, well, you're getting punished just for existing. How could that potentially be legitimate? You know, that's going to erode people's confidence. And I think you see that here in this paper, too, with, um, you know, these um, statutory rape prosecutions, where it's like, okay, everybody, not everybody, but so many kids are doing this, you know, so to the point that it, it sort of renders this rather meaningless. Yeah, exactly. And I
1: think another particular problem with the statutory rape, and this could, you know, sometimes happen with loitering, maybe with landlords or other people, but the fact that we're allowing private citizens, basically parents, mm-hmm. um, to to um, uh, initiate this and really drive these prosecutions. So I think it's over, well over 50% of statutory rape among two minors or prosecutions are um, flagged by parents. I think another big group is teachers. They're certainly not Police, for understandable reasons, I think it's good the police are not out, um, you know, policing. Oh, gosh. um gosh. Yeah, teens. But still, I don't think, why are we letting the criminal, why are we letting parents use the criminal law to control their children's sexual behavior, right? Yeah. Um, especially with another minor. So even if they don't like what the kid's doing or, or what the teenager's doing or what the, or it could be younger than a teenager and there could be legitimate reasons why parents <laughs> want to intervene, but letting them use the criminal law for this purpose, I think also renders it even more illegitimate.
0: Yeah. And I've practiced in juvenile court before. And, you know, there might be a lot of people who are listening who haven't had the chance to go to juvenile court. Oftentimes it is closed to the public. You you can't necessarily go and observe juvenile delinquency proceedings and everything. Um, But yeah, oftentimes I've seen that, yes, this is initiated by parents who are often upset when they catch their kids engaging in sexual conduct and everything. Um, Are there other ways that minors are getting over prosecuted versus adults in the juvenile court? Yeah, that's a great question. I do think
1: one other area, um, which is also related to sexual behavior is, um, is, uh, for status offenses, which are basically like, again, mostly initiated by parents and they're things that wouldn't be a crime for an adult, like violating curfew, um, you know, maybe having sex with people that your parents don't like or, uh, you know, um, and other things like that. And I think, again, this is a parenting problem and a big part of it is like due to lack of resources. Mm Um, uh, that especially in low-income communities or, um, you know, maybe the kids don't have anywhere to go after school. Maybe they don't have access to, you know, contraception or other things or, you know, proper sex education or, or whatever. But um, I do think that it's definitely not a criminal problem and approaching it and then criminalizing uh, young people, I think, is almost always wrong. And certainly in this context, and I would just add that, like, especially because of the really kind of harsh and and usually irrational way that we treat sex offenses in particular statutory rape. So many of these juveniles end up on the sex offender registry sometimes for life or certainly for decades, right. For, for again, what was consensual Mm -hmm. even if not legally consensual because they're both minors, but for consensual sexual conduct.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And you know, that that, that kind of comes back to a question that I was thinking of just now, you know, we, we talk about, you know, consensual sexual conduct here and everything. Um, you know, when I was prosecuting and defending kids in juvenile court, um, you know, there would we'd always be talking about how kids are just presumed not able, not to be competent to consent to anything. So when we're talking about you know consensual like conduct here. What, how do you, what do you mean by that? I guess.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's. I guess uh, what I mean is that we don't have any indication that it was non-consensual, right? But actually, well, two, two things. One is that. Um, you know, there's also some, um, when we look at the medical science, they mm-hmm. do say that um, sexual contact, like not necessarily including intercourse, but later, in the later teen years, intercourse can be like healthy and yeah. normal, right? So again, even though the law might say 17 or even though parents might not like it, even older than that, um, it can be, you know, healthy and normal developmentally. And certainly not, they say, you know, you cannot de- define someone as a pedophile. Uh, unless they're at least 16, and um, they say usually not until their 20s, and with someone much, much younger. So when we mm-hmm. see, again, prosecutions, and then kids who are 16, 15, labeled as pedophiles for having contact with someone a couple of years younger than them, that's just like not, you know, that's not only really stigmatizing, but it's also just not scientifically, you know, correct. The biggest argument that um, prosecutors, and I think, you know, um, and, and others who support uh, these, these kind of prosecutions, or keeping these laws on the books, is they say, we need them to prosecute real rape, meaning non-consensual rape, mm-hmm. right? And I definitely get that it's easier because statutory rape is a strict liability. Like, all you yeah. have to prove is the age and that it took place. On the other hand, I think, first of all, that further reduces legitimacy of the law because we do have these selective prosecutions. And the other thing is, there are problems in prosecuting non-cons like real rape, non-consensual sex, but then we need to address those problems directly rather than keeping these strict liability crimes on the books. That's yeah. another thing about statutory rape is it being strict liability is very unusual for, um, you know, a criminal law that involves, you know, potential incarceration mm-hmm. time. And that's classified as like a pretty serious felony sometimes. So I think that's, you know, just not fair either. Yeah, because
0: the strict liability crimes, you know, for those who aren't familiar with the concept, you know, it's, it's essentially, you know, a, a crime that you can get convicted of without actually having some sort of mental state of like trying to do something wrong. Um, so usually these strict liability crimes are, you know, pretty regulatory, they might be like public health related, something like that. And, you know, statutory rape is really out of the norm for those, right. Um, and I think yeah, it's exactly. really important to, you know, kind of get to this, this sort of point that you were making your paper where you quote um, Bill Stunts that look, prosecutors are really serving as today's real lawmakers when they've got these, um, you know, statutory rape laws on the books that are just, you know, um, strict liability, they, they can pick and choose, however they wish.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, and then it's so easy to prove. And so I feel like, yes, there are problems with non-consensual rape, um, in terms of, you know, evident lack of evidence and other things, but then we need to address those and, you know, and also find other ways. And in other work, um, more, more current work that I'm working on is, you know, finding other ways to address, you know, non-consensual or other kinds of uh, sexual crimes like, not through the, or sexual offenses, not through the criminal law system, right? Like doing more Mm -hmm, education, mm -hmm. doing other kinds of ways to get people, um, you know, to, to reduce the incidence of non-consensual rape because the criminal legal system has not worked for, even for that, which I do acknowledge that is, you know, is a crime. I'm not saying we should decriminalize non-consensual sex, but I do think there's better ways to address it than certainly through statutory rape laws or other kinds of prosecutions.
0: Okay. So, I want to talk a little bit more about just the juvenile court sort of experience that kids who might be getting prosecuted under sort of a, some sort of statutory rape statute might deal with. Um, So, you know, a kid might go and appear in juvenile court and they appear before a juvenile court judge. Is there a, jury at some point that they're ever going to have to face or anything? No. In
1: in almost every state, no. I think there's a handful of states where there's juries, like Massachusetts and maybe a few others. But yeah, in my experience in New York and in most, the majority of states, it's a judge, which is, you know, can be really problematic. I mean, juvenile court, basically, I think some scholars have, you know, have called it like the worst of both worlds, meaning we Mm -hmm. know that criminal court's bad, but juvenile court's even worse because there's some of the due process protections of criminal court, but fewer or like no jury, for instance, no entitlement to a jury, because it's supposed to be uh, rehabilitative and paternalistic in the good sense of the word. And of course, it ends up being worse because the judges, um, in my experience, um, you know, first of all, they're from very different backgrounds. Almost all the kids in juvenile court are um, low income or people of color. I worked in the mm-hmm. Bronx in Brooklyn for like four and a half years. And I had like a handful of uh, white clients and they were immigrant children, right? So it's really clearly those other cases, those kids are having sex or possessing marijuana or getting in fights or shoplifting, but their parents, the police are calling their parents, their parents are saying, we'll deal with it, we'll get them, you know, therapy, we'll pay for therapy or whatever it yeah, is, yeah. and they're not coming into court. Mm-hmm. The judges are extremely biased against them. I mean, just as a technical matter, they hear all the, um, suppression, all the pre-trial suppression notions. Sometimes they've even seen this particular juvenile before. Um, So it's very, I I would, it would be hard for them not to be biased. Whereas a jury is going to give them a fresh look and won't have heard, you know, excluded evidence. Um, But then a part of it is also just the makeup of the bench is very um, different, not, not diverse enough and just not tolerant enough. And really thinks, I think sometimes really thinks they're doing the, the young person a service by punishing them or sending them away um, which I don't think is ever a service, right? Like yeah. they're they're mostly, like I said, from low income families. Sometimes their families really don't have enough supports or resources. Mm-hmm. Still, I don't think any any person should be incarcerated in order to get services or you know access or to attend school or whatever the rationale in the judge's mind might be. So they're very, very punitive in yeah. my experience.
0: And I've seen that before too, where it's like, okay, we're doing this for the child's own good. And there, there've got to be better ways of accomplishing that. Yes, exactly. And I think it's just so crazy
1: that we could even think that's ever a rationale
0: to punish anyone, juvenile or adult. So the the juvenile courts, you know, I I forget when exactly they started. I I recall it being like the late 1800s or late 1900s. That's exactly right. I think
1: the first one was in Chicago. I believe so, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. Thank you. I I I was thinking like 1888, 1890, something like that. But the court was originally founded to sort of act like this surrogate parent, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. In fact, there's some quote from the early juvenile court that was like, because, of course, all the judges were male, but it's supposed to be like a benevolent father figure who will give them like a nice, you know, sort of talking to and then, you know, help them, you know, and I think the impulse was uh, mostly uh, was truly benevolent the sense of getting um, young people out of adult um, court and prison, which is obviously a good thing. And yet it did. It also had a social control piece, which is definitely only been doubled down on it in recent decades in terms of the kids or the p- young people in uh, family court here in New York. But I think this is true across the board, being overwhelmingly not mainstream, like they're from mm-hmm. families that are under-resourced, and that's mostly why they end up there, or they're engaging in just normal adolescent behavior like in some cases sex or other kinds of things that then gets um, really pathologized when they're kids of
0: color. general, generally sort of rebellious teenage behavior. Exactly. Okay. So, you know, you have these kids that are coming from, you know, perhaps families that, you know, consist of mainly, you know, new, new Americans coming here that perhaps haven't been assimilated. And you've got this paternalistic sort of juvenile court structure. Um, do you feel that the juvenile court is really kind of in, engaging in sort of like a forced assimilation or enforcing gender norms or anything when they interact with these children or anything?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I, historically, that was definitely because it was really founded in Chicago and then very quickly afterwards expanded to places like New York City where, um, you know, where there were lots of in, in big cities where there were lots of immigrants and then lots of, you know, sort of uh, low income people and living in sort of bad conditions. And I think their purpose was really to try and force them to sort of Americanize in terms of mainstream values and also become sort of middle class mm-hmm. American again without any government support to do so. So I think that is still definitely true. Um and I see that in terms of their standards of conduct that they expect from the young people and then also from their parents, right? Who aren't uh, on trial here, but obviously are being... Um, you know, it's very harmful to them and, you know, to have their children uh, go through these processes and they're being basically berated for not being good parents. When in many cases, again, it's really a poverty problem yeah. Um, or sometimes that they have different, you know, traditions or, but mostly it's sort of a problem that the kids, you know, are lacking. If they do do something wrong, they're either, um, you know, lacking supervision or lacking, you know, things to do after school, yeah. right? Yeah. They might not have parents at home because they're exactly. constantly having to work. Yeah. Basically they, yeah. they never had, par- I mean, my experience, like my clients never had, they're m- mostly single parents, because again, it was like, so disproportionately low income. Mm -hmm. And they didn't, they didn't, it's not like they had after school activities or places to go. And it's
0: not like their schools were very friendly community places in the first place. Exactly. So you know, you have a bunch of kids that just aren't getting really the support that they need in school, in the home, having to, you know, get that imposed upon them by the juvenile court. Exactly. Okay. So have there been any state Supreme Courts at all that have attempted to reel in these sort of expansive prosecutions that you see, um, you know, using statutory rape laws? Yeah.
1: So there was one, at least in um, in Ohio, a case like a few years ago, which is actually what really got me interested in this topic. First of all, it's a really interesting decision. Um, the Ohio Supreme Court, it's two boys, um, I think I'd mentioned, and the one who was prosecuted, they're both about twelve. The one who was prosecuted as the offender and then, you know, had really harsh consequences, including, I believe, sex offender registry um, was because he had initiated or he was the more masculine seeming boy. And the state, uh, the state Supreme Court said, look, reversed his adjudication as delinquent or whatever, um, and said that you can't apply a statute to punish someone who's in the class of those protected. And again, sort Mm -hmm. of a vagueness problem, which I think is a great decision. I wish more. Um, states would do it. Uh, but I also do think there's also room for legislative change in this regard, too. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, the um, more and more states do have these age gap provisions, or they yeah. also call them Romeo and Juliet, which is a term that is kind of annoying. I don't like, but um, but where they say people within three or four years of each other can't be prosecuted, mm-hmm. which I think is a promising step. Although I think we should say no juvenile can be prosecuted for sexual activity with another juvenile. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the model penal code, um, you know, which is in the sex um, offense provisions are being revised. We don't know when that will ever be finished, but their proposed statutory rape law, which I think is certainly a big improvement on current ones has a five year age gap, right? So like a 16 year old would not be able to, would not be able to be prosecuted for anyone older than Mm -hmm. 11. Even then I still think they shouldn't be prosecuted, but I think there's better ways to, to deal with that behavior. Um, if it is, you know, harmful, but, um, and probably a 16, 11-year-old, I would definitely concede might, that's harmful.
0: The 11-year-old's too young. But I don't think the criminal legal system is the way to address it. And, you know, we'll see if those changes ever come down the sheet because I feel like we've been waiting for them <laughs> for several years. It's so true. Like, I
1: think it's already been like five years. I think so. Anyway. So I'm
0: like, come on, at ALI. You know? <laughs> um, so I want to get finally to sort of the real crux of the paper and talking about how we can use vagueness doctrine to really approach these issues with regard to uh, over-criminalization, this excessive discretion, um, you know, dealing with the punitive state and the like. So how could we sort of reframe vagueness doctrine in our head? Because I I think a lot of people, you know, they they feel like it's not necessarily the most useful tool or they might not know how to use it.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great point. And I, again, I wouldn't have thought of that except for this Ohio um, state Supreme Court decision. But then when I started to look into it more and go back to, you know, like law school or like con law, criminal law 101 and look at Papa Cristo and Morales, the two big cases, um, at least historically, mm-hmm. I find them to be like very, very similar in the sense that Papa Cristo was also – actually regulating sex, sexual behavior. So that was the vagrancy law, like the first big case, Mm -hmm. but it was two interracial couples. And clearly the reason why the police went after them, they weren't even actually even really falling within the definition of the vagrancy law, although they were convicted because they were in a restaurant, which isn't clear that that's even was what, but I guess it was again, broad enough and vague enough that they could be punished for basically anything. And they were clearly going after them in Florida, which is where it took place for being an interracial couple. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that's and then the loitering in Morales was, you know, really overwhelmingly um, the police there arrested like tens of thousands of people and they were almost all young men of color on this very vague and tenuous and not proven in almost every single case um, suspicion of being a gang member. So, again, it was a way of just regulating youth, regulating sexual behavior. Um, which I think, or just, you know, it doesn't have to be sexual, but just regulating behavior and social control in a way that is really, I think, not the state's business and beyond the purview of criminal legal system. Um, Now, then the doctrine sort of fell after those two decisions, people were sort of, you know, definitely some people have argued that, the doctrine, the vagueness doctrine, is really about language, but it's really not. Um, and in fact, the majority of scholars, and I think the court's opinions make this clear too, um, talk about it's not really like the language in Morales, the learning statute wasn't unclear. It's just the real concern was that it just gave too much discretion to, in that case, police officers. And I would argue for statutory rape, more parents and teachers, but you know, prosecutors to some degree gave too much discretion to them to pick and choose who they wanted to, because mm-hmm. it was so broad and it could include almost anybody. Um, standing on the street corner for, yeah. I think it was like under two minutes or something. You know, if they didn't move when the police officer asked them to, so I actually think it has more bite than maybe some people have recognized. And then there's been some recent decisions, mostly in the white collar context, so it's a bit different, like skilling and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then even post the paper in Johnson and Demaya that have given vagueness sort of new bite yeah. in terms of addressing the overcriminalization problems. So it's really not about statutory language think that was clear even back in Papa Cristo. You know, Mm -hmm. the court didn't, you know, we didn't have the term over criminalization at the time. But what they seemed to be really concerned about there was them, was the police and then, you know, ultimately prosecutors going after um, citizens based on some other illegitimate reason, in that case, interracial dating, and having the laws be so broad and so ambiguous that they could punish whomever they wanted.
0: Okay. So, You've touched on this a little bit, you you know, and hinted at it. Um, Can you tell us more about your decriminalization proposal then? Yeah. So for,
1: in this case, I would say that we should get rid completely of um, statutory rape. Like you should not be able to, so say the age of consent is 16, which is the average in most states, that anyone under 16 cannot be punished for sexual activity with any other person under 16, under the age of consent. I wouldn't say remove statutory rape completely. So if you do have, you know, the the case that they've used to justify these statutes, like the 30-year-old with a kid, like, yes, although I still don't think criminal law is the solution, but my proposal is only for minors. But what's amazing to me is I began to feel like, really, the data is clear, like the it's overly punitive, like especially the sex offender registry you're punishing, you know, sometimes arguably harmless behavior where it's to older teenagers consenting. Um, But I got still got like a fair amount of pushback from people. Mm -hmm. They just really want that tool to be on the books for, I guess, parents and society to be able to control teenagers, which is really what I think it's about. But yeah, I would say get rid of it completely for minors. You cannot punish minors for sex with other minors. Okay.
0: Okay. And you know, it's interesting seeing why people are still so, you know, Really stubborn about keeping these on the books. You know, they're interesting arguments that are coded as being feminist or pragmatic and everything. And, you know, it, it's interesting just trying to um, juggle those, I think. I imagine you've gotten a lot of pushback from different groups that would identify themselves as, well, I'm being a pragmatist or I'm being a feminist or something like
1: that. Yeah, exactly. And I don't like discredit their arguments. Um, and then there are some who are just saying, like, literally, Scholars who will we'll remain nameless, but who would say, well, aren't you a parent? Don't you not want your kids to? It's like, of course, I don't want my 10-year-old, you know, to have sex. And I really hope they're not. But, like, that's not, this is not the solution. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so I do think, you know, the pragmatic argument is about the difficulties in prosecuting non-consensual rape, which I recognize is true. But I still don't think that justifies leaving a strict liability crime on the books. Like, mm-hmm. they should go after the non-consensual rape. As they would, you know, with the laws that they have for that. I mean, there's other ways we need to improve um, that system, definitely. And then the feminist arguments, I also think, you know, there's some validity, definitely girls are more vulnerable um, for a variety of, you know, sociological or whatever reasons. To being pressured into sex, so that would be you know consensual, but really reluctant. And I think that the solution is not again criminalization. Um, it's uh, of the boys or you know of them themselves. I think the solution is really more education and giving more supports to girls, like mm-hmm. to be able to stand up and you know say what they want or say what they don't want. Yeah, and you know I've
0: dealt with some cases both on the prosecution side and the defense side where it seemed very clear to me that you know the. The, the girl had no problem with this, that she, you know, this was something that she was engaging in of her own free will and everything. And it was really the parents that had a problem. So it you, always felt kind of like a strange um, kind of erasure of autonomy there, even just like physically and everything where it's like, okay, you know, you, this girl belongs to her parents somehow um, and they can decide what she does with her body. And it was always a little bit troubling seeing that.
1: Oh, that's a great point. And there's actually been some high profile cases like there's one, I think I mentioned In the paper that was out of Florida a few years ago, there were two girls and one of them was, you know, 17 and one was 14. And the younger girl's parents brought it. And so even the supposed victim there was saying, no, I consented to this. Mm -hmm. Like, I agreed to it. So you're right. They're erasing her autonomy. And you reminded me also of the historical roots of statutory rape, where that it was a crime, a property crime against the girl's father. Because the girl's father in the 19th century, that's when it started, was her marriageability, and this is again obviously based on a very middle class um norm, was based on her chastity and if someone else had sex with her before she was married, then she would be ruined. Um uh, and then the father's inter- you know, property interest in pawning off, I guess, his, you know, <laughs> Female, his daughter, who couldn't, you know, have access to employment, et cetera, onto another man to support support her would be ruined. So that's wow. that was its origins. It was not really to protect girls and women at all. Yeah. So I think even now that argument not only is going to be an effective way to to support them, but it's also just still based. You're right on this on this vision of sort of fragile femininity and them belonging to their parents or particularly fathers.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So. You have another paper coming down the chute, I believe, and I was really excited to hear about this. We've both been attending um, the criminal justice ethics schmooze here, and I I wasn't aware that you had this other paper until you mentioned it. It's like, yes, we're going to get some more of this. So can you tell us (laughs) a little bit about that new paper coming down the chute that's related to this one?
1: Sure. And first of all, I'm co authoring with, with Carissa Hessick but I don't want, I mean, we've talked about it, but she, uh, anything I say here, you can, any mistakes I make will be just mine because we haven't really started <laughs> it yet, but we're very excited about it. And she's written a lot about vagueness uh, more more than me and definitely knows uh, more about it. But we were thinking of it um, as applied to child neglect statutes. So like the criminal legal system, the um, child welfare system, you know, which takes kids uh, or, you know, surveys families and then often reviews kids to foster care. It is also overwhelmingly or disproportionately pe- families of color and overwhelmingly low income. And parents will have, there's been a number of cases, or I mean, all kinds of cases where parents will leave their child in a car for five minutes to run into a store um, or, you know, have an amount of marijuana. There were cases in New York where they had an amount of marijuana too small to be prosecuted, right? So, so small that it didn't even violate the criminal law and they'll have, you know, their children removed or their kids wearing dirty clothes, um, to school, and they'll have their kid you know, children move to foster care, which for many people is worse even than involvement in the criminal legal system in the sense that it can lead to termination of parental rights. Very, very harmful.
0: Like kids going to like the park alone and stuff like that, Yes, right?
1: exactly. So also kids walking home from school, going to, there's a case where the mother, like her kids were in the park, was next door to her house. She could see them from the window. Mm-hmm. I think they were like 10, 8, and 5. We're not talking about infants here. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Or even left in their home alone, like, you know, in a safe home for like 10 minutes while the parent had to run out and do something else. Wow. And the states will not give any guidance on what age is appropriate to leave the kids alone. So again, really, this really is... And to some degree, about statutory language and statutes will say things like any um, parents who do not provide prudent parental care. Or who do not provide appropriate nurturance—that as one mm-hmm. statute too. It's like, well, what does that mean? Yeah. Right? What does appropriate nurturance mean under this standard? Going back to my point about vagueness and the breadth of some of these laws under this standard, every parent has neglected mm-hmm. their child, right? Like everyone has done something uh, that would be probably not prudent or whatever you want to say. Yeah. And again, it gets overwhelmingly applied against low-income people and families of color. So there's started to be some pushback. We want to apply vagueness doctrine to this. We want to find out um you know what kind like do a more holistic survey because even more than the criminal legal system or juvenile court which is really hidden as you say mm-hmm. and below most people's radar so is this system right so most it's very um again isolated in certain communities low income communities um where you know people are getting their kids removed for stuff that isn't even harmful isn't even risky there needs to be some kind of nexus to um you know to harm right like we can't say leaving your kid for 5 minutes in the car is just not harmful, yeah, right? Uh, the risk is very, very low. In fact, the risk of stranger abduction. So one woman got her kids removed um, after they'd been strip searched and interrogated. Um, so traumatizing them um, for leaving them in the car for, I think she ran in to get muffins for them all for five minutes. And then the police came and called child welfare because they said, oh, there's a risk they could be abducted by strangers. Although they would have to break into her car mm-hmm. and carjack it. And then it turns out the risk of children being abducted by strangers is is lower than the risk of being struck by lightning twice. So it's a very, very low wow. risk. It's obviously very salient to people because there's high profile, of but it's extremely low. Um, as is the risk of something, yeah, of someone being abducted for playing in the park next to your house, mm-hmm. right? That's um, so we have to have some kind of empirical nexus to harm or risk. Otherwise, you know, again, we have all these people being caught up in a system um, uh, allegedly for the protection of children, which isn't protecting children at all and is actually doing harm to these families that are, again, disproportionately low-income and people of color.
0: I'll be excited to read this new project, but thank you for joining us today. This has been a really uh, fun chance to talk about your paper. Thank you. Thanks.
1: X-rated, Betty White. I'm X-rated, i'm x-rated i'll say it anywhere i'm x-rated i'm x-rated but i play it fair and square i like to look at naked pictures i like to think about sex i'm x-rated i'm x-rated it's a healthy part of myself when the flame in me starts rising you can't match it anywhere